0: I knew that nothing much that had preceded that moment stood for much anymore. And mysteriously, it didn't terrorize me. I wouldn't say it comforted me. I wouldn't say I was fine. But, and I, was, I reflect on all of these things, and I, I don't recall ever being panicked, uh, but, but having a vague sense of sorrow more than terror. You know, you just, you just, your life is characterized by, some, by a near miss. Like a breeze of something massive that just passed by you. And uh, I suppose m- all of my adult life has been lived
1: in the presence of that passing breeze. Today's guest is Stephen Jenkinson. In the excerpt you just heard, he was talking about the near-death experience and how it's affected him. My name is Matthias Olsen, and I'm the host of the Campfire podcast. This show is brought to you ad-free from Campfire Stories, a platform for film to inspire change for a regenerative future. Check it out at campfire-stories.org. In a previous podcast episode, I interviewed Stephen in Portsmouth in the United Kingdom after seeing his show, Nights of Grief and Mystery, during its European tour. I had so many questions for him, but the time frame for our meeting couldn't accommodate all of them. So after that interview, I reached out to him again to set up a continuation of our talk. And that's what you're about to hear. This was recorded after his tour was finished and he was back at his farm in Canada and I was back in my studio in Sweden. Before we begin, I'd like to send out a special thank you to filmmaker and podcast producer Ian McKenzie who was the one recording Stephen's audio in Canada for this interview. I'd like to warmly recommend that you check out his films at ianmack.com. This interview begins with me asking Stephen to describe where he is during this talk of ours, his farm and its surroundings, to sort of paint us a backdrop for the ensuing conversation. Here we go. I hope you enjoy the ride. Beside me is the uh,
0: river of abundance and time, as I've called it in Diewise. It's just right here. And it's a real place. Um... And I was in the river this morning and then up a little bank to a little writing shack that I wrote about in come of age called Cabin, the one I could never go down into. So I'm on a little deck outside there. I've just come off of a ceremonial four or five days that included a lot of privations of various kinds. So I'm still feeling the aftershock of eating again and things of that kind. It's a spectacular day, uh, but we've already begun to feel the change in the season, which is not in the quality of sunlight, but it is in the air when the sun is not quite direct anymore. And you can already feel the rivers a little cooler and, and the beginnings of melancholy stir, at least for me, to know that the, the, the season of real uh, depth and, and promise is beginning to wane and I can see it in the corn, and in the growth of the pigs. And then, uh, just over the rise behind us, here is the house I live in—straw bale house—and I just turned sixty-five today. Uh, about a week ago. Oh.
1: well, a belated happy birthday. Thank you. And thanks for the intro. I'll give you a short intro of where I am. Also, um, mm-hmm. I'm in a small town called Yarna which is sort of an alternative community you might call it uh about an hour outside of stockholm um and right now i'm at my office which is in a sort of industrial building that has one corner of it about maybe 6000 square uh square feet that uh, has been turned into um recording studios and um and uh what do you call that? Recording studios and a place where, where band can rehearse. Rehearsal spaces is the word. Uh, and within that area is a little other area which is an office. And within that office, I have my office. So that's the basic setup of of my situation. Not quite as nice as yours, right? No, now, I won't. Still, I won't is. trade you. <laughs> but still, this is my home away from home, and, and there is some love here too, even though it may not show in this image. Mm-hmm. Either way, uh, so I would like to begin, just to start off nice and gently, I'd like to begin with an impossible question. (laughs) Completely impossible. Um, So here goes. This is stump the stars time, is it? (laughs) So if humanity is heading in the wrong direction, and it sure looks like it is, what what might the beginnings of the right direction look like?
0: Well, that's a big if. Um, you know, this word humanity doesn't do any of us any good. The implication of the thing, of course, is that there's this, there's this brute force, um, maniacal, uh, self-important uh, swarm of, um, um, of um, satisfactions seeking their end that constitutes humanity. And there's a lot of people and even whole cultures that don't fit that description, it seems to me. I don't know many of them, but I'm going on the distinct possibility that they've, they're remaining out there and that they're resisting globalization and things of that kind. But they might be in the minority. Certainly, numerically, they're in the minority. So, but there's, you know, as a, as a writer whose name escapes me at the moment says, there's a way of saying we're all screwed, that sees to it that we're all screwed. So I'm, I'm not going to, you know, comply with that obligation to to be annihilating in the answer to the question. But uh, there are some humans, good, you know, huge numbers of them, that um, answer to your description of you've said heading in the wrong direction, as if there's only one wrong direction. There seem to be. I mean, we're creative in this regard. We found extraordinary numbers of uh, you know mayhem avenues and they're extraordinarily compelling so it could really confuse you uh you know as to what the real motivation might be but I'm in one of those places even though right now you'd quote never know it but this is what the storm also looks like and um well, I don't know if it's the question is, is the, a matter of heading in a particular direction. I would say the question is one of momentum rather than direction. And if I had anything to do about it, if I had any way of changing it simply by a force of my own will, I would just try to slow it down before I insisted on any particular direction or purpose or outcome you know, my initial purpose would be let the poverty of our time mess with our capacity to proceed. That would, that I, I, it doesn't sound like much of a recipe for anything at all. But as I look around, I see a complete unwillingness to voluntarily slow down. And minus slowing down. I don't see any purpose in answering the question where where should we go. Wherever it is, we should go slowly. Even if it's towards sanity. We should slow down in our pursuit of sanity and sustainability too. Because I think it's the momentum, it's the rate of change I wrote about in the last book. This is the real hell. The amazing thing is you can be in hell and never arrive there. And, and I think the, the, the crazy unwillingness to voluntarily restrain ourselves is the hell that precedes the destination, the hellish destination of, you know, climate collapse or, or whatever it is. I mean, we're already largely there. And, uh, and the world is showing the early, you know, early warning signs. But I think we're out ahead of the consequences for the world. Our our poverty in the West are already so manifest that you know the world is a kind of late echo of our fondness for our own particular madness.
1: Hmm, thank you. Um, so you've worked with a large number of people. Uh, that are in their last chapter of their lives. Right. Um, have you ever yourself come close to dying? Yes. Could you maybe... <laughs> Say more about it? Tell that. us a little bit. <laughs> tell us a little bit. So you don't take the
0: second question to ask for more. Um, well, it was a couple of times. Uh, uh, and all of them were on the sudden side. Meaning um, that I didn't really have a lot of understanding that allowed me to know where in the arc of my life I was. I was very young, three and a half, I think. And I got spinal meningitis, which is in those days was fatal more often than not, especially with young young people of my age at the time. But I have a very clear clutch of memories uh, from it. Uh, one of which I related in Die Wise, the, the scene of... My mother being obliged to leave at the end of visiting hours. Leave her dying kid. I mean, just the thought of it now. It's very chilling, but that was the decorum of the time. And her looking back at me through the, uh, through the window of the hospital uh, safety door. You know, the glass, the little glass o- opening. So that's very, very clear. And um, the, the extraordinary long period of recovery through the summer was, uh, is a memory I have that coalesced into my understanding of why I can't sleep or rest or even close my eyes when there's light out. And I'll never be able to do it. Not comfortably, not willingly at least. Mm. So that was one, um, let's see. I was hit by a falling tree and a massive falling tree which was <laughs> fairly sudden, and I escaped a hair's breadth. I was knocked over like the way you do flick a mosquito off your arm. That's, that's what it did to me. But for some reason, it didn't kill me. Um, I fell off my barn roof when we were taking it apart, fell about 17 feet down, hit my head, opened my entire scalp, blood everywhere, and mysteriously, no concussion which I certainly should have had if not paralysis and broken bones and things of this. That was very close. I was I saw my death coming from a long way off when I was in the Mediterranean and we were in the slow process of being shipwrecked on an old Danish catch somewhere in the late 1970s. Well, that's a rogue's gallery of my near misses.
1: Can you is there one where you can maybe go into a little bit of the the moment where you thought this is it and like and slow down that moment if that's possible well you know you
0: never should speak with authority about something that doesn't happen right so i would have to describe it to you almost as a tourist as a kind of outsider to whom uh, th- that i stumbled upon something that i didn't understand rather than I'm an authoritative reporter on the incomingness of something utterly unprecedented. Um, mm. Let's see. I don't think it ever happens that um, particularly if, if the prelude is not chronic illness or really marked physical demise, you know, that, that you can really reckon... If you don't have that kind of uh, midwife to your understanding, you really have to decide rather than be persuaded that this is it. Very much like the climate-related answer I gave you a few minutes ago. You kind of have to decide that you're in harm's way because the information is so unprecedented. It doesn't point to anything. It doesn't turn into a story that that you recognize yourself in. So I don't know that I ever, quote, knew that I was dying. That's mostly the benefit of hindsight. But... I knew that nothing much that had preceded that moment stood for much anymore. I was a kind of a strangely meaning-free place. And mysteriously, it didn't terrorize me. I wouldn't say it comforted me. I wouldn't say I was fine. But, and I, was, I reflect on all of these things, and I I don't recall ever being panicked, uh, but but having a vague sense of sorrow more than terror. And if I had any terror, it was after the fact, which is a bizarre (laughs) human exercise that you're terrorized by something that didn't happen, that you were close to, but then you were spared for some reason. And then you live the rest of your life in the reason, in the for some reason status. It's a very odd place to occupy. You know, you have to, in some sense, make up your mind and in some sense discover the reason for your persistence when you know, and in my case, I know quite a few people who came to their dying the way I did at about the same pace that I did and they didn't get the return ticket and they're dead and I'm sitting here uh, for no particular uh, by virtue of no particular merit not dead and uh, that has more consequence the longer I think you live it out than it does at the time at the time, you're kind of um, like a passenger on a bus that never got where it was going. It's not much to talk about. You know, you just, you just, your life is characterized by some, by a near miss. Like a breeze of something massive that just passed by you. And uh, I suppose all of my adult life has been lived in the presence of that passing breeze. And the beautiful thing about it is, it's never left me alone. And the deeply challenging thing about it is that it's never
1: left me alone. Now, um, in all your workings with the uh, with in the death trade, as you call it, um, the, the palliative uh, world, yeah. palliative care world. Um, you've described that it's a highly sedated, uh, that a lot of people can and will choose to not feel pain, um, uh, through medication. What, what do you think, what do you think they miss? What do you think they miss out on by not going through the pain or by not, by choosing to Or or having people recommend to them that take this pill and and you you won't feel what's going on.
0: Okay. Well, you know, to be really fair to the people you're asking me to talk about, it's not that they've been pain-free until the moment of trying to make this decision about sedation and then simply choose to remain pain-free. Generally speaking, the, the mania for obtaining relief comes from the absence of that relief for some considerable period of time. One. Two, the suffering that you're alluding to is um, not principally physical. Even though the physicality of the thing tends to eclipse all the other nuanced um, stories that you could be in on. Which is its own poverty in a way. And then you're surrounded by people who collude with you in pretending that dying is what's happening to your body, rather than being a whole person event that has some, some physical details to it, right? Okay, so that's the caveat. And then, and then to come to the, the, the kernel of what you're asking me about. Um, the decision was a kind of non-decision for most of them it went something like this. The worst part of dying is that I know that I'm dying. And there's virtually no one to know that with. And sedation is a sane response to that kind of existential isolation. Now, honestly, that formulation has never occurred to me before, but I, like I, I don't know if you could tell, but I occupied the place that I saw so many people deciding that decision from. And as soon as I did so, the appearance of it was different than it may have been when I was adjudicating the propriety of their decision about sedation. Don't get me wrong, I'm still saying that it's an an awful decision to make and to have to make that, um, of course, you know, in answer to the explicit part of your question, I mean, people trade in lucidity and responsiveness for the, the passing possibility of something like peace of mind. But I don't think you can be sedated and have peace of mind at the same time. I hope I never find out. But sitting here today, as I think about it, I'm not sure that those two things ever appear in the same place. So you either have some kind of mindedness or you have sedation. And sedation might be the inability to have some kind of mindedness. And why anyone would choose that for themselves, I think it suggests the distinct possibility that they're dying in a place and time having any awareness, any alertness, any, any mind to give to the operation has nothing but downside. There's nothing, there's no merit in knowing and conducting yourself with your, the people around you as if what's happening is happening. So I'm back, alas, to the observation that the principal architect of miserable death is a death-phobic culture that keeps solving the phobia by prescribing it.
1: Hmm. All right, thank you. Um, So we've spoken quite a bit about um, the the final chapter of the human life and and your, uh, I mean, in the previous talk and in this one, but we haven't really touched on what happens to the physical body after it's dead um, you touch on it in die wise i think but very briefly and my understanding i'm talking about uh, burial practices and, and modern burial practices my understanding after doing a little bit of research is that the the most uh, i mean the, the best way to to do this uh, uh, for the for the rest of life um, would be to just have a, a shallow grave and, and let your body give back to, to, the, to the earth. Um, but that, um, I think, that thought doesn't really leave the modern mind um, a lot of peace. But uh, w- what are your thoughts if we go a little bit more into like burial practices and and and, and yeah, maybe just start off. What, what do you think of the, the modern way of, of doing it, and then? from there, like, how could it be done? Well, you know, the
0: the fantasy of going back to the earth for most modern people is just that. It's really, it's an unconsidered and frankly indefensible fantasy. And here's why. Because if you've been treated during the course of your illness, the chances are monstrously good that putting you in the ground is like depositing a kind of uh, um, sack of radioactivity, if you will, especially if you've received chemo and radiation. I mean, it's literally the case. And I'm not sure that there's anywhere in the world that should be subjected to your um, deeply medicated carcass. Now, that doesn't sound very sympathetic, (laughs) but if we're talking about the disposal of the body, and, and we are here then I think that's a realistic consideration. I mean, in my part of the world, there's two places that are more toxic per square foot than anywhere else. One is golf courses, and the other one's cemeteries. And it's basically for the same reason, because the only way to get that effect is to micro-nuke the whole place. No weeds in both of them, right? Nice green grass and even lawns, and you understand. So so, um, natural burial, I mean... This is the phrase that's used typically or green burial around here. But it kind of ignores what you're putting in the ground, the state, the quality, and, and the, um, the afflictions of what you're putting in the ground. So there's that. And then, uh, um, my wife has more than once threatened a Viking burial for me. <laughs> and so what she's imagining is here on the river, I suppose under cover of night, after the tourist season is over <laughs> and, and there's no electricity around, I think what she's imagining is pushing me out into the river uh, on fire and hoping everything burns to the water line and the whole affair sinks to the bottom and nobody really notices except for the scant witnesses that are there. And uh, I hope she's not arrested. <laughs> but, but I wouldn't be shocked at all if that's what she does and I never should have said it out loud here for, but, but I mean after the fact well I don't know like I, probably I won't be there at the time so. So, but it might be an interesting thing to watch from a distance which hopefully I get to do um, yeah of course many cultures have understood that, the, that there's a real grace and mercy to flame there at the end After all, I mean, although my body's not what it once was, I'm still remarkably fond of it, although the fondness often takes the form of critical regard. But I do have that strange willingness for this to be me. And this is not an easy habit to break simply by my heart ceasing and me stopping respiration. I would imagine I'd still... um, I still want the best for it, yeah? So fortunately, I'm not in charge at that point. But the finding a way to, to agree in some fashion or at least to be defeated by the inevitabilities of the thing might be aided and abetted by the flames. There's a lot of cultures that have figured that part out and, and, and maybe they're onto something, you know? Whereas the genteel being entrusted to the ground, more or less looking as you once did I think that make it harder. I don't. I don't know, of course, but but uh, you're asking me to think about it here on a beautiful day, and uh, maybe there's grace in burning down to the waterline. Maybe your ancestors had it
1: properly figured out. <laughs> so, um, thank you. Welcome. Um, so you are you mentioned uh, uh, skipping topics here, like crazy. <laughs> you mentioned your, your pigs before, uh, when you were describing the, the fall um, air, and uh, so you, you, you have uh, pigs and sheep, if I understand. Right. And having uh, tending to them and, and being a, a sheep and pig farmer, um, what has that taught you about life and death? I don't know if taught is the right word to describe what's,
0: what's occurred. You could say I've been disabused, which is not a bad outcome. It generally means that every idea you ever had that drew you to the thing doesn't survive doing the thing. So I've had to become a beginner over and over and over again, which is remarkably hard on your self-esteem, if there's any left by the fourth or fifth Uh, attempt to get it right, finally. I mean, you know, an animal takes sick or something happens, you're you're literally powerless, frankly. (laughs) And the experience of powerlessness when you have responsibility for two different beings is a um, very arresting Thing you know i r- I rather like the formulation of being responsible to them, and um, we have to i mean when they're born in the springtime, we do everything we can aesthetically and and philosophically and metabolically and um, veterinarianally whatever the verb is there or the adjective and to to get. Everybody across the threshold and into this world uh, in one piece and upright eventually and nursing and all the rest. And we do so knowing full well that probably three, well, two thirds of them at least will not live to see the first snow. And the reason they won't live to see the first snow is that we'll kill them. And how do you remain or finally become a human being when these two things are side by side? Because if you can't pull that off, you probably should not be in it. And even if you can pull it off, you have to renew your understanding of this this covenant, this um, this deal that you must strike with life and with the ending of life. You have to do it every year, every year. You bring a little more expertise and a little less hard heartedness to the prospect. The older you get in it, I hope but um, obviously look not everybody lives to old age on a farm almost nobody does Uh, and this this is the closest we can get to imitating the wild on the farm is that we take upon ourselves the responsibility to occupy the place that we have vacated by domesticating so we banished all of the uh, the adversaries, all of the predators and so on by barbed wire and and our dogs and uh, what have you. And we compromise the health of the very animals you're asking me about in so doing. In the name of having them here and keeping them well, we've compromised their health mythically, poetically, metabolically also. Because it was the coyote and the wolf that ancestrally underwrote their... The, the health of the sheep overall. And when you banish that, you are compromising everything that you claim to be a champion of. So this is the moral quandary of domestication, is that you have to reconstitute that function. Otherwise, you're lying. You know, for the sake of having a, a, a kind of relatively intact conscience on the matter, you have a conscience that's absolutely in error about what you're looking at. So if you occupy the the position of the carnivore and the predator, uh, you do so knowing that this is the least you can do and that you're not really the beneficiary of this primarily. Primarily the beneficiary is the gene pool of the people in question. Uh, Excuse me, of the sheep or the pigs in question. So um, I admire the struggle that's made available to us and feel grateful for it in this work. But I can tell you when it's time to pull the trigger and take the knife out, um, we do so grievously, not victoriously, not being absolutely certain about the moral order that we've disturbed. But... Deliberately and prayerfully, and hopefully efficiently, with all of our human frailty brought to bear upon the thing, but not allowed to interfere overly in what our covenantal duty is to the ones that we've lived alongside of for the previous six months. Something like that. Mm
1: -hmm. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I have a, a really hard time when I'm at the supermarket and I see the like chicken breast really like big and really cheap. And, um, it's something that I have suppressed for many years, um, yeah. and just bought it and, and cooked it and mm-hmm. not thought about it. But then it came to a breaking point. I think I saw a film, uh, that showed that, like the insides of the, the workings of the, the meat industry and, yeah. um, yeah. It just got harder and harder. Sure. Could you offer maybe some thoughts on the the the, yeah, the meat industry, the the from from the like insemination to to the, to the so the lives that to they the live, extermination, to slaughter to to our plates at, or right. you know to the hamburger. Do You know,
0: the meat industry is an easy prey. I mean, there's nothing I can add to what's been said, what's been revealed, what's been documented. Kind of covertly and all the rest. It's all very indicting, and it's understandably so. But my preference is to is to dolly back a little bit from that uh, calumny and wonder why is there a meat industry at all. And the principal answer to the question is because many of us agree that that's the best way we can get fed. So the collusion in the arrangement at the level of the customer is something that needs probably more attention, not less. And to be deeply disturbed by the fact that what you're paying for and you're paying a miserly amount, you're paying for somebody else to do your dirty work for you. That's the arrangement. And that's why these things turn into the ghastly factories that they... That they've become. Because there's too many of us. We're concentrated in too small a place. You know, speaking of ur- the urban context. We have no capacity to, to um, live a way of life that's, that somehow reflects our capacity to feed ourselves. And then we insist on paying next to nothing when we do go about the act of, quote, feeding ourselves. I mean, one of the great transgressions is cheap food. And I say that as someone who lives in one of the most materially sophisticated and prosperous and lucky places that the world has ever seen. It's a very indefensible statement to make. But in this place, and perhaps in yours as well, the most indefensible degradation is not the factory farm, it's not the commercial slaughterhouse, it's... $1.99 a dollar ninety nine a pound for mystery meat and the insistence on paying that and no more so so the you know the boutique situation in the in the farmers market uh, is the particular enclave of people with a lot of money who quote want to know where their food comes from they don 't really want to know they want to know it doesn 't come from the bad guys and I say this with great um, almost affection for the enormous dilemma of the thing. Because I'm in a position of not being obliged to live this amnesia. But I recognize it. And I simply say, you know, to use contemporary circumstance and numbers, that if you pay $1.99 for meat you don't understand, um, you are paying elsewhere and later much more than what you think you're saving at every level, at the level of your personal corporeal health, obviously, the health of your family and your dependents, but certainly the health of the, the, quote, alleged community around you, especially the non-human part of the community around you. All of these things are compromised when you go cheap with food. Food should be amongst the most expensive things in our lives because food is sacramental. And it's um, communion and every time you can get away with with a negligible consequence to your bottom line in engaging in communion, you have to wonder what the consequence is for the communion and whether it doesn't diminish it so irretrievably that even communion itself becomes a two-for-one offer. A buck 99 a pound offer, a get it while you can offer. Obviously, communion is where you get to remember how lucky you are to be alive. And if that's not a costly event, you wonder, I wonder at least, how much gratitude is generated by exercising gratitude that doesn't cost anybody very much.
1: Thank you. Welcome. Um, skipping to uh, a different topic again. Uh, so you're—I uh, just saw you. You were on tour in um, in England um, and Ireland uh, with the Knights of Grief and Mystery, right? Uh, which is a, a, a storytelling poetry concert combo mix thing. That's a new genre, I think. <laughs> I don't know if I described it very well, but yeah. Um, but I understand from reading your books that you have a mentor from your younger days that you went perhaps on a similar tour with. You know, this was...
0: I was lucky enough to be in on a partnership that nobody declared. Uh, but the, no, the notion that it was anything like an equal partnership is a complete illusion because it was actually an apprenticeship. Nobody called it that. I never knew what it was when it was happening. I'm not sure I wondered about it very much. I was, in a nominal way, a band for a storyteller. One guy, not very musically adept, uh, therefore not very promising. And I can't imagine what he thought I brought to what he already knew how to do without me. But somewhere in there, uh, he insisted that I accompany him, and I caved. And in the intervening six or seven years, uh, while I was allegedly helping him with his performance, which is a complete lie, I wasn't helping him at all, I was giving him another contending variable (laughs) to find a way to manage you know, and that was when we were playing and performing. But there was, especially on tour, you know, the lion's share of the time is spent getting from here to there or getting set up or whatever it is. And that's where your life is actually lived, not in the during the time of the performance. And and it was in that time, and I don't I say this only with the benefit of hindsight, that he was not very secretly stealing from me. Oh, you mean he didn't pay you? No, I don't mean that, although that's true. He didn't pay me. Did he offer to pay you at least? Uh, A couple of times. But I refused it so vehemently that I think he stopped offering it. Because I knew this much. I knew, first of all, that he and his wife were living on very little. And that I had no business taking any money from him. And I also knew too that it was somehow not in keeping with what our deep running arrangement was. That I was the one that should have been paying for the extraordinary privilege of being stolen from, as in, as a deeply untutored young person product of the West. And so when I call him a thief, I mean, it doesn't sound like much of an admiration, but this is, of all the things he did for me, which were considerable, this one may be at the top of the mountain of his gifts. So he was relentlessly himself, uh, which is to say that he never turned on or off. He didn't have a stage persona, and he dropped it as soon as there was no audience. No, that was the guy and he was insanely difficult to be around, from a kind of social affability point of view, because if he was there, that's all that—that's what was going on. And I don't know if you can picture that, but it's—it's um, it's extraordinarily demanding. You don't get—you can't breathe, but through the filter of his presence. You can't—you can't respond to anything, but to something that he's already done, or said. And then your response becomes a subject of further uh, elaboration from him and on you go. But for all of that, the thievery was very subtle and took a long time to appear. He, He reached in there a hundred different ways and he took from me any ability I might have had subsequently to live... As if life wasn't good enough, as if being alive was not its own reward, as if, as if there was this mythical more that should have kicked in. Uh, as if I wasn't a child of fortune simply by, you know, rising every day. And I, I don't know if that sounds unnecessarily chipper, because <laughs> I'm not normally that guy. I don't think this sounds chipper at all. I'm describing it as theft. Because there's a lot of wiggle room in grudge and grievance. There's a lot. You can get out from under any obligation by having a grudge or a grievance about things not being good enough and life not being kind enough and bad timing and what your mother didn't do for you when you were six and everything. And uh, he just stole all that. Uh, And he stole from me principally my ability to proceed as if I'd never seen a fellow human being, incandescent and and entirely engaged in the work of occupying the life that had been entrusted to him. If I'd never seen that, I would never have been able to formulate that sentence. It would never occur to me that there's such a thing. But he was that... He had a kind of samurai thievery about him that you never knew you were being stolen from. It took years to figure it out. When I would see the grievance of others for, you know, I I could not actually understand it because I'd been relieved of it. By the way, it doesn't make me a better person, a more tolerant person. Anybody who spends any time with me knows full well I have very little tolerance. So what did you do with the... uh, mysterious gift that you never asked for and he seemed not to give you? And the answer is, well, I've lived long enough to be able to occupy the gap that he carved in the continuity of my grudge match with life. And that's where I am now. I'm in the empty seat that he emptied by being the kind of guy he was. And... It doesn't make me his contemporary or his equal, not by any stretch. I know how good he was. Yes, I have a band as he did. I have a better band than he had, by the way, which makes my gig easier than his was. But um, I know enough to know that I'm simply occupying his example without, without the um, skillfulness but with the willingness. I won't hide on that one. I have the willingness I learned from him that might be an approximation of his own. I did learn how to serve by watching him. And that's what I'm doing. And I have a band who can actually orchestrate my service. So I should be paying, wait, I am paying them. (laughs) <laughs> that's the difference I have a payroll that he didn't have
1: good one no. <laughs> and we who are living at this time in life are grateful that you're carrying his um, well so- something of him Yes. Uh, onto this, this you're, you're going on tour again I understand in a couple of weeks we're going out for about two and a half months Right yeah so maybe by the time this is released it'll be it 'll be time for everybody to get their tickets
0: wouldn't that be something <laughs> wouldn't that be something you, you can bring down my overhead ever so slightly if you agree to come
1: <laughs> but then, if I had agreed to come to North America to see the show, you mean that too but then but then I had to contend with the c o two emissions of the flight and then i'd be like making all kinds of strange calculations that even Einstein wouldn't be able to figure out.
0: You know, I can't fix everything. I, I don't know how most stuff works.
1: <laughs> I know you have a, a busy day, so we're going to uh, round it up, but maybe would you be so kind as to l- tell me a little bit about what's happening on this beautiful day in Canada at your farm right now when we strike this set and you move on? What's, what's next for you? What's on your agenda? Well, it's warmer than it was when I sat
0: down to start speaking with you. And uh, the river has calmed down. The initial breeze of the morning has died off. And these are the, the beginnings of the last sultry days. And tomorrow at this time, there will be 60 or 70 people who are trying not to be strangers to me gathering for probably the 10th year for them uh, of the Orphan Wisdom School, the, the old timers or the hard timers maybe. And I have to go up to the hall, the teaching hall now that I'm lucky enough to have and ready it for them and do something with them that I've never done before to wonder about the mandatory mechanics of eloquence under pressure when there seems to be no real point to it anymore. That's <laughs> my working life and it starts tomorrow evening for the next five days and, and I'm just readying this um, meat sack for their appearance on the scene by taking my vitamins and pretending to sleep and, uh, you know, hydrating and not being too Excessive which I fail at fairly routinely. So they're coming to give me a reason or to to remind me of why I'm still here and why I was with Brother Blue on the street for as long as I was. So as the song says, you won't hear me complain.
1: Thank you so much for taking this time to speak with me. And thank you, Ian McKenzie, for hooking up the technical side over there. And uh, that's it. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Wrapping.